0: Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, and I'm joined by my co-host, second-year child and adolescent psychiatry fellow, Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Hi, Toshi. Hey, Aaron. Third-year psychiatry resident at UCR, Dr. Saloni Singh. Hi, Saloni. Hi, Aaron. And second-year psychiatry resident, Dr. Alan Atkins. Hi, Alan. Hi, Aaron. Views expressed on Let's Get Psyched to those of the speaker, they do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR's School of Medicine. Well, on today's show, we're gonna talk about the Warrior Toughness Program. And to do that, we are very happy to have as our guest again. Thank you for joining us a second time, Navy SEAL Master Chief Steve Drum. Hi, Steve. Hi, my pleasure. Now, during his 27 years of service, he's developed the, and led high performance teams in combat at every level. And in the most challenging extreme environments, he was a principal architect of the U.S. Navy Warrior Toughness program. As a trainer and consultant, he helps organizations create simple and effective strategies for developing peak performing leaders and teams. Maybe that's a good place to start is, can you explain a little bit about the Warrior Toughness program, how it began, some of the genesis of that?
1: Yeah, sure. So I had moved from Virginia finishing out my, my career as a SEAL and, and took a job up where I was overseeing a program uh, at the Navy's boot camp in Great Lakes, Illinois. And my job originally was to, to oversee the program that indoctrinated and uh, onboarded young men and women that wanted to do the special programs related to the water, right? SEAL, diver, air rescue, swimmer, explosive ordnance disposal technique, uh, divers. And our job was to give them the physical training right more time in the water to get uh, better stroke development on uh, on land right running uh, calisthenics but it was really pivotal that they get the type of mentoring that would in, help them answer their why question when they were facing those adverse situations towards the latter part of of that was 2015 2017 i got approached By an admiral who basically said, locked me in a room with a clinical psychologist and a (laughs) Navy chaplain and said, hey, we need to get our our sailors tougher based on some stuff that had happened in the fleet. Some missiles being fired at ships and and things like that, where our sailors were not responding to those high pressure situations or not responding to that adversity in in a way that we needed them to. How how does it feel to to be the guy who an admiral
2: goes to and says we need to make the navy tougher like you're the toughness guy?
1: Well, I just happen to be that guy, right? I just happen <laughs> to be there. Hey, we got a SEAL Master Chief hanging around. Let's uh, let's bring him in. And so we did. We developed a curriculum for uh, basically initially for the recruits, and my role was my role was creating a framework. Based on a mindset, based on how we train and prepare for high stakes moments in the SEAL teams, and within that, we onboarded uh, a performance psychology, mindfulness, meditation training, and character development. And so it was uh, we did study and control groups and proved that it was effective. And then we started to export it to other areas in the Navy.
3: That trio you've got going on there to develop the program is so fascinating to me. Can you explain what each person brought to the table? Were there any surprises you had about recommend certain recommendations or? Or anything? No,
1: exactly. And that's a great question because when the three of us got together in completely dissimilar uh, career fields, right? What we were surprised to learn is that when it came to how to make young men and women tougher, we were all kind of singing off the same sheet of music. We all kind of felt like the same things were important in terms wow. of character development, in terms of being able to to perform under that pressure uh, and, and then being able to to kind of take people that do it well already in combat in the SEAL teams. And take the lessons learned from how we do it and put it into actionable steps into a curriculum uh, where we could not only teach, but also measure to make sure that what we were doing, how we could make changes to make it more effective. And, And I think, again, the chaplain brought in a lot of again it was mind body soul and so it wasn't at all even though the chaplains they they're fundamentally about religion in the service it wasn't religious right and what they would say is if religion and spirituality plays a major part in your life then then that's good here's how you lean into it if not then here's how we look at it in in other ways in terms of developing our character of how we, who we are, where we want to go, how we show up in the world. Right. Uh, The the psychologist who did a lot of heavy lifting, uh, a brilliant, uh, brilliant lady. uh, We become good friends and and her job was to really look at all the other programs the military was using, right. uh, The performance psychology and the sports psychology and, and look at the different programs and extract Uh, how these, what worked, what didn't work and help build a curriculum with that based upon, again, the performance psychology and mindfulness and meditation, uh, which was important to uh, sharpen that level of focus as well as to help us regulate our emotions. Very scientific approach. Yes. I'm I'm so excited
2: by the idea that mindfulness made it into a Navy warrior toughness program. It feels like it's really made it. (laughs)
1: i think so and i think you see it everywhere i have a good friend of mine who actually he teaches uh he got out of the service and he teaches mindfulness meditation to, 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 to the corporate world
0: now you were talking about how mindfulness was used to regulate emotion was that one of the biggest reasons why people didn't act in those really high pressure situations uh because they weren't managing their emotions well and that kind of interfered with them to make decisions and just act
1: Absolutely. And there's, you know, there's a lot of different things. And I think, you know, if we, we discussed in, in the previous episode, you know, I talked about my first combat experience and how we did a level, what we call stress inoculation, right? You dip your toes into stressful situations and you keep repeating them and you build upon them, but you do it in a thoughtful way to where adaptation uh, happens. Right. And, and I think sometimes If you don't apply that, it's one of the biggest things where I wanted to take the Warrior Toughest program before I got out was injecting that level of stimulation into – Navy training at large. In many cases, I feel like a lot of the training, like sailors at sea are so frigging busy, right? Trying to keep operating systems up and they, you know, they're not getting much sleep as it is. And so when you say, Hey, we need you to train for the fight, which could be fire, right? In a lot of cases, that's what you're going to see on a ship. That's what combat on a ship looks like. Uh, they just were like, just checking the box and they weren't really like training. Like you would a, a soldier trains for combat, And so that was really important. And I think that was one of the contributing factors, but largely it's about your ability. And we call it toughness and we define toughness in three ways. First is to take a punch and keep going, right? You take, you know, you see your friend hurt in front of you. You've maybe taken a wound, uh, but you get back up and you return fire. But it also means that, hey, I may have suffered a loss. Maybe I didn't get that promotion I wanted. Maybe I lost a a, a relationship, a loved one. Uh, I still have to be able to get back up and get back in the fight. The second part of the definition is I've got to deal with the day-in, day-out grind, which is I've got to be able to, long deployments, uh, which could be either very mentally fatiguing or very boring. In either case, I have to maintain my engagement, my focus. And lastly, the most important part of that is that perform under pressure, right? When, when you're feeling the fear, the anxiety, the stress, right. Is for you to be able to lower that arousal where you can think critically, make good poised, composed decisions where you don't look through a straw instead you see the situation and you let that inform your decision-making. And that's ultimately what we tried to, the gap we tried to, to close with, with our training.
2: If I can nerd out for a second, I, I I was curious about something you said on one of the ideas that we've thought about um, around some mindfulness techniques, like body scanning, is that the the part of the spine called it's called the DCML for for those who want to nerd out that sup, that uh, does light touch and and um, position sense can actually kind of suppress the part of the body that receives pain did you ever receive you you were talking about like okay you've been hit and your buddy just uh maybe just got killed and you have to you have to keep going did you ever actually receive any direct training on okay you're in extreme pain you just got hit and you need to to carry out this tactical thing here's how you do that here's how you suppress the pain
1: I never received this training. And that's what I said. I said early on and is a lot of in the last episode, the things that I learned a lot of things, they became intuitive to many of us, right? And and certainly nobody taught us these things. And that's why, you know, years later, I think we started introducing performance psychology type training in about 2006, I think, uh, right around that time period. So I never had the training, right? I just learned things on my own uh, intuitively. And so I never really had that kind of training and definitely not to that level of detail as, as you described.
2: So does the training now, okay. Yeah. So, so does the training now that you guys created, or do you know of any training that's actually about like
1: how to perform best when you just got shot? Uh, no, I think that's not, you know, I think no, not directly, not like Not deliberately, right? That that I know of is not there. Now there I've been out for about a year and there are commands that train at a very, very high level and they may have, uh, they may do some work on that. But I know a lot of cases, you know, we go through, we practice close quarter combat. You bust through a door and people are lighting you up with paint guns, like these little small bullets, They're fired out of the real guns that we use. It's called simmunition. And that thing will break your skin open, right? It'll and it trains you like to, to just program yourself. And and when you look at law enforcement, you'll see in many cases, based on Hollywood, some people are out of the fight when they get shot because that's how they feel that they're supposed to respond to that. Whereas if you're trained, so when when we train. You know, if you're playing the bad guy in a role playing situation, you get shot and you fall down. Right. But we always train our people. You never fall down. You ne- You keep fighting. Like, I don't care if like the guy just unloaded a half a magazine on you. you- you're like you're trained wow. to not do that. Right. Wow. So and that's so. OK, so it sounds like you've actually
2: done that. You've 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 been through a lot of pain while continuing to fight. Do you have any memory? And that's what of buds how, training how is all about.
1: No, week, buds. All of that is about pain, about losing your fingernails, mm. about just your your body is covered with sores and you're bleeding and 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 it really hurts just to take one step. And so that's like the that's just yeah. You're you're taught that right indirectly.
2: Wow. So that is kind of, but you can't put everyone in the whole navy through buds training. So maybe this is in no. Some and ways, it's not a like substitute.
1: And it's not like very. It's not like. Very technical. Now they they have they have uh, tables that they'll use when they expose people to the really cold water during Hell Week, right? And even before Hell Week, when you you do what's called surf torture, where you lie in the surf zone in in uh, Coronado, and we all know like the hey the the, the this this. Pacific ocean is cold. Right. And, and they have tables to how long they can leave you in there. But in terms of like, Hey, we're going to do this specific thing. And we're looking at this, like we're looking at injecting this specific type of, of psychological technique. Like we're not there yet, but I hope that we are right. I hope we're very deliberate. Like, I hope that becomes the focus of the training is developing certain attributes under stress. Other than just like the technical skill, the skill should be subordinate to to the the mental uh, coping skill or or the the attribute that we're trying to develop. If that makes sense,
0: I know that you don't want to like uh, type people or profile people, uh, you know, early on in training too much. But after doing it for many times, can you identify folks that are probably going to be super successful, very successful in the training, and the people that are really going to struggle? And if so, what types of personalities are fit for both of those categories?
1: you know, in terms of Navy SEAL training, they have been trying to figure that out for years, right? They've done different physical tests. They've done, like, we take a whole series of mental tests, right? Uh, Psychological profiles to try to figure out who that is. And they could just never predict, Mm. you know, that, that little scrawny guy, you know, there's, there's no stereotype for who, who's going to make it. Like you can't look at somebody and say, they look like they're in great shape. You know, we have like what sometimes we'll we'll refer to as the iron marshmallow is the guy that doesn't even look like he's in shape and yet he can like run faster than the jacked dude. Right. And, and you just, you just don't know.
2: I had one of those iron marshmallows on my swim team and he would always outdo me every single time.
1: Well, it's also though, there's the common expression when it comes to Navy SEAL training that it's 90% mental, right? You've got, it's a given, you got to show up and you got to be in phenomenal shape, but it's the mental piece, obviously, right? It's the self-determination, self-efficacy that's really going to, going to be the difference maker.
3: Which is why that mindfulness piece is so important. Can you talk about the big four components of the Warrior Toughness program?
1: Well, so that is something that we borrowed from uh, other from the SEAL teams, right? And I think that's really big on, uh, from naval special warfare, right? I think they're the ones that developed that. And my psychologist took a lot of what they were doing and put it into the program. and the, And the Big Four is essentially it's arousal control we actually called it energy management because you're working with a bunch of like 18 year old kids right so you call it energy management instead of arousal control right it's goal setting self-talk mental rehearsal and uh, arousal control or energy management as we call
2: it. and can you talk about maybe if you have examples of times in warfare that those have worked well for you or can you kind of talk about how these are employed
1: Right. And so goal setting is very, very broad, right? You can like, that's a very, that's like talking about leadership, right? It's very broad in how you, how you want to approach that. Uh, you know, a good example. And so one of the things we, you know, for Navy SEALs, right, you're, you're told out, you're told to the, the things that I would say, right? There's the smart goal setting strategy, right? The smart approach, Uh smart goal setting. But then there's also like the chunking method, right? It is where you focus on the process rather than like the big, rather than the whole day, right? In SEAL training, you focus on making it to the next meal and the next meal after that, right? You don't look at the big thing because if you sit there and that's why a lot of people fail SEAL training is they go earlier on, they look and they're like, I can't do six months of this crap, right? It's, it's the totality of it that really is that overwhelm factor. So when we chunk our goals out into much smaller segments, it becomes much more approachable, right? And it becomes easier for us to kind of conceptualize and also execute. When it comes to arousal control, energy management, I, I always like in this use this example. Like if you can think of football, like the last play of the game, the different energy demands, right? Let's say it's the game is going to be decided by a field goal kick. You have the two sets of line, offensive, defensive line, and a host of other players, right? They're going to be the ones smacking each other on the helmet and the pads getting jacked up because it's max energy. It's like I got to get to that kicker from on the defensive line. And that's like you're up there, right, toying into the into the the bottom of the red zone maybe, right, whereas the kicker is lowering that energy, right? They want the type of energy. They want that stress to be useful, right? They want it to elevate their their performance sharpen their focus, but they want to maintain the maximum use of their five motor skills, uh, situational awareness, all those type of things. And so, nine times out of ten, we need to lower that arousal in, in combat situations, right? Because you need to be functional and you need to see everything. You can't be tunnel vision, you need to make use of like of being able to pivot and adjust if things go off script and that's what's so necessary in a combat situation in special operations. And that's also where the true professionals and experts uh, separate themselves from the more amateur people. Everybody can do a certain thing when things are easy. It's when the apple cart gets upset, then we see the real professional rise to Mm -hmm. the occasion. Mm -hmm. In terms of mental rehearsal, that's very simple. Uh, you know, it's putting yourself into that situation. If it's a training situation, uh, then it's like, all right, I'm going to engage my senses. I'm going we know this is uh, athletes use this to great success. An injured athlete uh, will, will do this uh, uh, to, to give them a chance at being successful. They're going to use their senses. They're going to say, what do I hear? What do I smell? What do, what do I see? What do I feel? Right. To put themselves in that situation as realistically as possible. And then they are going to make sure. That they are always the master of of uh, of that dialogue, bar, or that that scenario. They're always going to make sure they end that scenario with a successful outcome. Hmm.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Let's Get Psyched on KUCR, and we're talking about Warrior Toughness, the Warrior Toughness program with Navy SEAL Master Chief Steve Drum. I want to ask about. You know, when you are uh, training folks that are not in the military, they're not in, obviously the Navy SEAL program, and you're training pre-performance. How do you do this uh, stress? Uh, like uh, you're dosing yourself with these high-stress situations, so you're ready for them and you're prepared for them and you can deal with them. Well, how do you do that in the real world? What, what, is it seeking out challenges, or how, how do how do you what do you recommend to folks to get that kind of training?
1: And that's a harder one, right? And it depends on on what group I'm working with. You you know, on the one hand, like I can't sit there. It's not going to work. Like I'm going to get a, I'm going to get in trouble with HR. If I go say, we're going to yell at you to put you under stress in the workplace. Right. That's not really something that we can do now. You you know, my wife happens to be a pharmaceutical sales rep. Right. And she's been doing it a long time and she's been very successful. So if I were to tell her and her friends, Hey we're going to do some role playing like they would check out so fast it, it wouldn't even be funny but for, but if but I'll push back and say If you're going to do something in a high-stakes situation, whether it's as a new manager leading a team for the first time, whether you've got that critical sales call, whether you're maybe going to deal with some contentious people in the workplace, and you have that specific moment, you want to make sure you're at your best, you need to find a way to premeditate that, right? You need to find a way to be able to mentally rehearse that, right? First, what skills do I need to excel in that situation? What are some very basic things? What things can I be brilliantly basic? You know, those, those fundamental things that I can be confident at when I'm in a situation as if like I'm in combat, I'm not thinking about how to use my equipment or how to, the tactics work. I already know it because I rehearsed it so well. I know these basic skills. So now when I'm in that situation, I've mentally rehearsed it. I've created a mantra or a performance statement, right? I've acknowledged it when I get stressed that I have put the work in and I do, and I've got this. And I can perform in this situation. I've talked my way through it. And when I'm there, I'm fully present. I'm fully engaged. And when something happens that I I didn't anticipate, try as I might, I put some time into considering contingencies. But if something happens that I didn't conceive of initially, then I'm going to, at the very least, I'm going to stop. I'm going to take a beat. I'm going to read the situation. I'm going to read the room. I'm going to connect with the people that I'm engaged with. I'm going to offer the most thoughtful response possible to drive uh, my goals forward, even if I don't have the perfect answer. But the point is, is that I don't get thrown out of the driver's seat, a wash from emotional impact. I still stay composed and effective.
0: How long does this take? Can I ask you about just your own personal process? Like when you do mental rehearsal, you prepare for some Uh, you know, really important event or something or, or, or just when, when you were in combat, how long does this process take?
1: It really depends on what I'm doing. Like, for example, when I'm, you know, when I was trained as a, as a professional speaker and we're, we're trying to deliver a craft, deliver a speech, I will go through and I will like, I rehearse it. I rehearse it for hours right? You want to bring me in to talk for 45 minutes. uh, You know, it seems pretty easy, but I'm going to rehearse. I'm going to customize that and I'm going to do it. I'm going to go through it at least probably 10 times if it's a 45 minute keynote. And I'm also going to spend some time. um, The more comfortable I am with the material, the less I have to do it. But I remember early on in my, I'm like, it's only a matter of time before I get up on stage in front of a couple thousand people and my slides don't work or my slides crap out on me. And so I've got to mentally rehearse that. And sure enough, it happened. And thank, thankfully I put the time in because I didn't miss a beat and I didn't get thrown. Right. I mean, that would be tremendously scary if I wasn't, <laughs> you know, yeah. that would be to me like getting shot at, you know, I would be that like in front of a thousand people and your stuff doesn't work. And so, uh, again, I, I put a fair amount of time, but now I know my material well enough to where I can probably do it, but uh, you, you spend a lot it really it's hard to say exactly how it really depends on the situation.
2: And I, I think it's worth saying from a psychotherapy perspective that what Steve is saying is exactly right. you know the the mental rehearsal is consciously noticing recognizing what will the smells be, taking the time to actually, go through it, but not catering to your fears and negative thoughts about just ruminating over the part you're dreading over and over. You're actually going through this thing as a disciplined process, being mindful about it, and then continuing your day. It's very different than the mental rehearsal that some of our patients might have when they ruminate over the potential outcome over and over, but they don't actually get anywhere. And there have been studies about this where they're not actually, they're just reprocessing it without any added value. Um, Steve, you mentioned these tables, which, by the way, I sound sound fascinating, right? Of like, how long can we do? How long can we like do the water torture training for? And how long can we do these different trainings? Is there t- are there tables for stress inoculations, like yelling? And are there tables? Do you do you have these senses of like, okay, this is how much um you can break someone down before you have to start building them up? And how does that look?
1: No, there's not. And that's the thing. And that's why like, I think the benefits of when we were talking about all this, we're professionalizing and, and we're making more technical the delivery of, of these certain psychology techniques, right? And we're, we're getting better at it. I just remember, you, you know, Alan, you and I discussed this before, like, why would you ever yell at somebody, right? Why would it be appropriate? Well, you know, in, in many cases, when we talk about training recruits, it's appropriate to yell but well, we yell because we choose to yell. We don't yell because it's a reaction. And one of the things I always talk about is I always want you to be able to respond versus react. When you respond is you read a situation and you deliberately choose a behavior, right? As opposed to reacting blindly, right? If I yell at you, it's because I want a, a certain training reaction. I want or, or uh, something to, to happen. I want you either to, to pay attention to what I'm saying because it's important because I feel like you're slacking off or, or I, I want to say, I want to make this harder. I want to add a, dist- I want to put an input in. I want to make this more difficult. I want to elicit a stress response. I want to try to distract you, right? Because I want to kind of get that. I'm hoping that you'll get that adaptation. And I remember early when I would train close quarter combat, right? Which is very dangerous method of, of, of clearing rooms like you see on TV, right? Like the SWAT teams going in, right? And we do that. And we would always yell again to to try to do what we can to, to build those kind of um, Um, that grit, those, those, those attributes of being able to perform under pressure. And I remember just doing it blindly. And then one time I looked at this kid, I turned around this this young officer and I looked at him and he had like a glazed over look on his face. And it suddenly occurred to me that like, you've got to be more deliberate with how you deliver this type of stress mechanism. Right. Because he like, there's no good in yelling at him anymore. Like he's locked up. Like this tool is not going to work. So then that was like a big game changer for me with how I I was regulated, how I delivered stress and how I like gave somebody a more thoughtful approach to solving their problem, helping them solve their problem.
3: You know, that makes me think about my oppositional defiant patients. Patients with ODD, a diagnosis of ODD, which is basically those, those teens or adolescents who often argue with authority figures like teachers or police officers or their parents. They're, they try to annoy other people. They blame other people. They don't follow the rules. Um, so many times I've worked with patients with this diagnosis and they join ROTC and their behavior completely changes, not just at school, but at home. What do you think about that? Why do you think that is?
1: You know, I I really don't know. I know that it seems like a common theme in the SEAL teams is we seem to attract people with a disdain for authority. Right. And, and, and yet, a high, a super high degree of discipline is required. Like, you know, you'll see a bunch of seals go out there with their, and their flip-flops and their long hair, but like their weapons will be kept spotless, right? The certain practices that they will do, they will always do to the utmost of their ability. It has to be perfect. Uh, But you may not see that from your outward appearance. And I think in many cases, I think we all to varying degrees require a level of routine and and framework for us to, to be comfortable. And sometimes I feel like we just need to be able to buy into it, right? And I think whenever I teach, whenever, whether I'm talking to young people or I'm talking to professionals, it's like I always start with the foundational mission statement of who you are, right? who are you? What's important to you? What do you stand for? How do you show up in the world? And how do you want to be seen by other people? Right. And from that, when we can help people to identify that while also getting them to buy into the greater core values of the uh, ethics, morals of, of an organization, uh, when we can meld those two things from there, we can start to build upon that. And, and I think that's the real key. And wow, uh, that I, totally I, makes sense. Yeah. yeah.
3: Yeah. It seems like a lot of it, this is self-examination, you know, so much of building toughness, to self-examination. And I did want to ask, I don't uh, uh, forgive me if you already talked about it, but you mentioned self-talk earlier. So um, is, you know, what is what do you see with that in terms of breeding toughness? Do you see more self-critical self-talk is helpful or harmful?
1: Right. And so there's a, a variety of different ways that I like to approach self-talk fundamentally it's got to be specific. It's got to realistic. And most of all, it's got to serve us. It's got to help us. Right. And it's almost like, you know, when I talk to kids, I'm like, Hey, you can't put 87 octane pump gas in the race car right? And your race car engine is your brain and you've got to feed it good fuel. And when in the military, we use self-talk in a couple of different ways. At the most fundamental element, in many cases, when we're trying to do something very quickly and precisely, and there's distractions going on, we talk our way through the procedure to make sure that our hands and our brain move in unison, right? If I'm going through inspecting uh complicated equipment, I've got to like talk my way through it to make sure that I don't miss something. Right. In addition, we also have what I think is important to develop a performance statement and people refer to that as a mantra, right? When I, my first time getting shot at or in combat, I said three things to myself, shoot, move, communicate. When we're in a gunfight, you got to shoot, you got to return fire. You got to try to get the enemy. You've got to probably move you're not going to stay there. You're either going to withdraw or you're going to try to maneuver on that enemy. And lastly, I've got to make sure that I communicate the what we're doing to all my teammates, right? And that keeps us locked in. And lastly, we got to make sure that we put quality thoughts in our brain, right? When we make a mistake, we make sure that we put quality thoughts in there. We focus on good things that, that get us where we want to be moving forward.
0: And that's all the time we have for this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Today we talked about the Warrior Toughness Program with Navy SEAL Master Chief Steve Drum. Thank you, Steve, for joining us again. Thank you. And thank you to our co-hosts, Drs. Tokshi Yamaguchi, Saloni Singh, and Alan Atkins. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, you can write to us at getpsychedonkucr at gmail.com, and you can listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform. If you like tonight's show, please follow us and post a review. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. I've been your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched.